Hey folks, welcome to another spirited screen watching. This is the podcast where we talk very passionately about things we've seen on the screen, around screens, near screens. Like really, we just walk past screens, we've got hot takes. Folks, Simon, what are you doing? You're doing a little dance. I'm stuck in the sunlight here. It's very hard doing this in, in the sunlight. I look like a tiger, like a tiger. Uh, anyway, press the buttons. Oh. Okay, the podcast is off to a terrible start already. This is not like TV, only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Look, it's 8.16 in the morning in my part of the world as we record this and I've watched Simon dance. It's deeply unsettling. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett. I'm joined by the aforementioned uh, master of the dance, Michael Flatley. You step aside. We've got Simon Foster. Uh, it's good to be here at 9.16, now 9.17 here on a uh, kind of overcast spring morning in Sydney. Um, you've got your whole Friday ahead of you. I've been up from very early this morning speaking to a fairly big name in the world of entertainment, or at least on the East Coast of America, all around the world, really. His name was Neil Laboot, and I hope I can find the um, footage from it because it was a good interview you and I don't know where it is. Don't you love Zoom when it does that? I <laughs> Anyway, just getting stuff off my chest. How you been, Dan? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. I probably should shout out to um, R.I.P. Angela Lansbury, one of the great stars of television over the years. She shuffles off the mortal coil this week. Um, God bless you for all your wonderful sleuthing. Yeah, I mean, who could have seen that happening? <laughs> I mean, just days shy of her 97th birthday. Yeah, I know. I know. She had a good innings, yeah. as they like to say. She's up there sitting at the Queen's shoulder, just talking television. No, the thing is, like, Angela Lansbury, from what I understand, was a bit of a fun character in real life, and yes. it's genuinely a loss. Like, she seemed like a lovely person, uh, a bit of a... I'm not sure acid tongue is necessarily the phrase, but she was certainly one that didn't mind a bit of the salty language. Uh, she was a very uh, loud, vital woman. A bawdy lass, as they say. And anyone who looks yeah. back at... she I mean, she had such a long career. She was kind of drop-dead gorgeous as a, as a young ingenue back in the day. <laughs> so I wrote a very brief obit because the news came through just as I was sending out my newsletter yesterday morning. Yeah. And I wrote something and I kind of regretted it afterwards. I, I know I what you wrote. <laughs> I wrote that she was a smoke show. And I'm like, was that really appropriate? I'm not so sure, but I don't regret it. No, don't, no regrets here in the world of screen watching. And just listen to any of our past podcasts and you realise we have no regrets whatsoever. What are we talking like we, about today, for God's sake? Uh, sorry, I, I do have regrets and it's pretty much every episode every of this episode. podcast. Simon Foster, we've got a lot to get through. I'm just going to tell people what both of us are talking sure. about. You are talking about the third and final in the current trilogy of Halloween movies. It's the end of the Halloween franchise yeah, for we'll the moment. See. It's called Halloween Ends. Uh, then I'm going to talk about a new streaming original on Paramount Plus, a movie that I guarantee nobody has heard of before, but it's sneakily really good. Uh, you're going to describe a motion picture, I presume, called Muru. That's right. Muru. From New Zealand. M New Zealand. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to talk about another TV show that you've probably never heard of before, but it's a TV show that definitely exists as a TV program. It's called Fire Country, and I've got some things to say about that. We're going to have some rabid conversation about the Hardy Boys. Uh, Simon's going to just ooze Generation X, um, teenage lost all over the microphone. It's going to be something special. Folks, let's not dilly-dally. Let's dive right into reviews. <laughs> Thank you. 
It stinks. All right, Simon. Halloween ends. Does it end? Well, as a movie it ends. It sort of grinds to a halt after a fairly turgid hundred-odd minutes. But as a trilogy, it shows that this last few movies have been fairly uninspired. And although they started off with some big box office and a lot of hope in the wings for a rebirth of the franchise, it I don't think it's worked at all. And this final um, version of the Halloween story suggests that it's really just running on fumes and, and goodwill at the moment. Um, in this one, the and I haven't written for this because I felt not inspired enough to sort of pen a three-paragraph pricey of the film. It just didn't inspire anything in me that that, that got me worked up. Um, Laurie Stroud, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is still moping on about what a tough life she had 50-odd years ago. Um, with, I get over it already, I Laurie. I get Jeez. over it. Jeez. Still living in Haddonfield. Why she hasn't moved away, I don't know. Um, she's writing a book, and she starts the film by saying, I'm taking agency of my blah, 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 blah. So it speaks directly to the new young audience for whom character agency is so important. And uh, she's got a daughter pay, played by the very lovely Ali Matichek, I think it's pronounced, um, who finds in her new boyfriend, Connor, someone who may be just a little too close to the Michael Myers way of thinking. Um, he, in a very graphic opening sequence, he has a terrible accident while babysitting um, and becomes sort of the pariah of the town. Again, doesn't leave the town, but um, would be the right thing to do, but doesn't do it. So uh, she, he, uh, Connor... Is his name and uh, Laurie Stroud's daughter hook up. Uh, she starts to get one over to the dark side of evil. He starts to um, uh, sort of, I guess, feel the similar sort of longings for evilness that Michael Myers felt. And suddenly, about an hour into the film, Michael Myers turns up, which is really a crucial part of any Halloween movie, having Michael Myers in there. He doesn't have a lot to do in this film, and he gets away with some good kills, but nothing that sort of tops out the series. And then it ends on this, without giving too much away, not that these are any very plot-driven, or maybe they're too plot-driven, I don't know. Um, Yeah, and then we're left with this sacrificial offering of Michael Myers to the meat grinder of franchise movie-making. So... Um, I can't get too worked up about this third in the series. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has gone on the record saying that this new trilogy is all hooked up, and if you watch them as a six-hour block of movies, you'll see uh, underlying themes, and there's no way in hell I'm going to watch them all as a block of six hours. Um, Fans won't be steered away from this film, and they'll go and see it. It'll have a huge opening weekend, probably have a huge second weekend drop-off despite... Halloween itself just being around the corner um, and hopefully we can wave goodbye to Michael Myers until the next young producer comes along and sees the chance to make a few bucks. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these and it just kind of feels like I've seen it all before. Like, there's no new ground. Like, they're not doing anything new with Michael Myers. Like, why not play with genre? Like, do a rom-com with him or something. Like, just find some sort of new way in. What they tried to do, and this came out in the, the second, the middle sequel, Halloween Kills, was they tried to turn it in as a very specific uh, reference to Trump's America and, and the uprising of um, very, you know, divisive cultural aspects and those that support Michael Myers and those that don't support Michael Myers, and it just bogged down the whole film. And I remember thinking after that last film, it's a Michael Myers film. Just stab people, would you, and get move on? This is what we come and see these movies for. And they're trying to, to turn it into some kind of elevated pop culture character like a Freddy Krueger who has deeper, darker meaning inside our nightmares. And it's 
none of that is in the original story or there to be toyed with and and i just think this is um the worst kind of ip sort of regurgitation okay i'm done that's me i'm out mic drop okay cool yeah i mean i've got nothing else i can really add to that at all i I certainly sorry i was gonna say i certainly don't think it's going to um uh knock smile off the top of everyone's favorite horror film of the moment thing smile is doing big business around the world and rightfully so it's a really terrific film um you know what sorry just just on that uh i was looking to go and see a movie last night i ended up seeing um oh gosh what's it called um the darling don't bother darling Mm -hmm. that's not right don't worry darling don't worry darling um, so I saw that. I will talk about that later in the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was like going through the listings and I saw Smile was playing. None of the sessions anywhere in the three fairly large cinema chain theatres I was looking at were playing it on their big VMAX screens. Stupid people. Well, it's kind of weird. Like I thought it's the big movie of the moment, but instead if I wanted to go and see on a Wednesday night at 7.30 or 8.30 DC's Super Pets, I could see that on the VMAX, <laughs> but I couldn't go and see the big horror movie of the moment, which actually have an adult audience. That does, yeah, seem, that does seem perplexing, other than I would say that maybe the horror audience, it, it, you'll probably find that it goes back to VMAX on the weekend because it's a bigger movie-going horror audience on the weekend for the kids. But surely there's more people interested in Smile than, like, week two or three of the animated Superman's dog story flying around. It's a hell of a film, though, DC Super League. Have you seen it? Oh, look. Great (laughs) I've heard so many good things. Great film, especially the cameos from Dr. Chris Brown and Julia Morris. I mean, that needs to be seen, heard on the big screen. Look, Simon, I'm just going to have to move on. I'm just getting (laughs) too excited. We're going to talk about a new Paramount Plus movie called Significant Other. Now, Simon, you and I have discussed this very briefly on the Twitters. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that you'd heard of the movie but knew nothing really about it. I had seen, I think maybe, I don't know if I'd watched a trailer for it. I suspect not. But I saw that there was this movie starring Jake Lacey. And anything with Jake Lacey, I'm there. Okay. There's so, something about that guy. And I come from the like, other angle. Deeply uh, compelling. <laughs> I come from the other angle that I'm anything Micah Munro I'm all over, which is probably where I heard about this. She's the girl from It Follows from a few years back, and she's made some really cool little indie films since then. So um, as the pair in this, yes, I was I knew once again I knew of it, but hadn't received any sort of forewar forewarning it was coming our way. Yeah, so I didn't really know her. So I've definitely seen It Follows, but I saw it once, you know, a bunch of years ago and I don't really remember it too closely. And I don't know if I've seen her since then or not, but she's very good in this. Mm-hmm. The film is basically, for the majority of it, a two-hander, where you've got this couple, they are, you know, a little bit into their, their relationship. I don't know if they established how long, but- Six I years. Feeling maybe, maybe six years? Six years. Yeah, I was going to say five. Yep. Yeah, been together for quite a while. Uh, she is established in their relationship. She doesn't want to get married. She's got no interest in that at all. Uh, he does pop the, uh, pop the question while they're on this hiking trip. And this hiking trip that they're on, which is going through the forests of the Pacific Northwest, so it's got these gorgeous lush forests all um, surrounding them. Uh, basically, this is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a test to see whether or not she's going to be interested in the hiking lifestyle that he's kind of really into, because he'd like to travel the world and do some like really big hikes. And so, you know, depending how she fares here, like this is it. So it's a bit of a test for that, but also because he's about to propose marriage, it's a bit of a test for the relationship and stuff. And so they're walking through the forest, they're having these conversations. And I knew that it was a bit of a thriller of some description. So I kind of thought that the way the story was heading is that Harry, the Jake Lacey character, 
would in a typical Jake Lacey move turn out to be somewhat a little bit more sinister or they'd come across like a third person while out in a forest and, you know, some sort of horrible thing would happen. Yep. That's not really quite what happens at all. Uh, uh, like, how much should I reveal here, Simon? Because so much of the joy of this movie is the discovery of it. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, I know from your tweet um, that you were quite taken by some of the developments. Um Mean, yeah, mean, I'll just, mean not I'll, I'll just so say, much. Sorry, I'll just say that the movie was one thing and it was kind of heading in a very specific direction. And then, I mean, there's something that happens in the opening seconds of the movie, which kind of made me think, oh, wait, this isn't the film that I'm really here for. Yep. And then that kind of comes to the forefront. But then like about 10 minutes later, it starts turning into a comedy of sorts yes. and became laugh out loud funny. I was very much into it when that happened. And then there's another plot twist where you reveal that perspective has shifted. And I was really impressed with that. Yep. And then something else happens and I'm like, oh my God, that. And this film just managed to surprise and delight me about four or five times throughout the film by changing perception, uh, perspective, just being majorly different radical shifts in the same film. But it still felt fairly consistent yes. at the same time. Uh, I, it's really unique. It is really, it's a fun film. Did you say really unique? Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty unique. Just in that, yeah. I mean, I, sorry, my dog's currently scratching with his collar. I don't know if you can hear him just jangling uh, away. It was you under uh, the under the frame of the camera there. No, I, look, I, I do regularly have my ID tag, sort of, you know, causing some issues. I, I think that by and large, it kind of felt like each of those things I've seen in films many times before. Right. But just the fact that it just kept on shifting and changing sure. in the way that it did, that's what felt fresh. Their relationship felt unique and fresh, um, and. I, I think the fact that it opens with a fairly sort of um, form, not formulaic, that's a, that's a sort of poor connotations, but it, it opens with a familiar, as you say, um, sort of pairing of these two lovely people going on a hike deep into the woods, things are going to go wrong. But also, it's kind of a nice pairing as well. Yeah. They've got some very honest conversations, yeah, exactly. and it's like a nice relationship drama at that point. The chemistry is good. Um, and then the twists and the turns. Uh, the first one, not so much because of what happened to that the poor deer at the start of the film. Um, hmm. That's D-double-E-R. But the... But then the other variations, especially when it sort of swings back to the more romantic elements of the plot. And you're right, we don't want to give too much away. But it was very funny and very strange and without letting go of any of the uglier horror elements, which play into the film really nicely. It's got some good kills in this one as well. So, yeah, look, it's significant other. I don't know if it was a, cin a cinema planned release that's gone straight to to the Paramount Plus streaming platform. But either way, it's, it you know, shut the curtains and, and make it dark and enjoy this film because it's a, it's a blast. Yeah, I felt a little bit, I'm, I'm not sure necessarily bad for my wife, but like she started watching it with me and then like the horror elements and it started and she's not a big sort of horror person, particularly late at night. She's like, I don't need to see this. Yeah. And she just goes to bed and just I hear her walking down the hallway. Suddenly the, one of the shifts happens and I just start laughing and laughing. <laughs> And, like, she just kind of missed, like, you know, what I think was something which was very much in her wheelhouse. Yeah. Significant other star. Now, where do we know Jake Lacey from? I'd recognise the I face immediately. I mean, Jake Lacey's been in everything. Yeah. Sorry, just to answer one of the questions, I believe this was a movie that had been, um, you know, produced and then Paramount Plus bought it and brought it on board as an original. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, apparently there was a bit of a bidding war. Uh, so, look, Jake Lacey's been in so many things over the years. Okay. Uh People probably know him best from The Office. He was in The Office for a little while. Yeah. 
Uh, he played Pete. Uh, he was a romantic love interest for um, what's her name? Uh, you know that girl with the red hair. Oh, he's done some big work. You know, he's done. Yeah, the, but he was. But in, look, you've you've seen him in a bunch of indie things. He's a bit of a like. He was in Carol. Uh, with like Kate Blanchett. In, he's yeah. like an indie. He's like an indie adjacent sort of an actor. So people have seen him in Miss Sloan, which is a film I really like. Yeah. Um, Obvious Child. People saw that. Uh, TV series I uh, said The Office he was in Girls for about 10 episodes there's a really underrated show called Billy and Billy produced, which is a bit of an incest comedy written and produced by one Neil Laboot who mentioned yep. it in his interview if I can ever find it yeah, uh, yeah. people have seen him very recently in The White Lotus yes okay and yeah. also he was in the High Fidelity remake uh, not too long ago as well but look he's been in so many things yeah. and I kind of get the feeling that Hollywood really like him, but audiences don't really quite know how to connect with him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he plays it, like, in that opening sequence for Significant Others, that opening sort of half hour, he plays it quite high-pitched. Like, he's a, he's a, feels like a bit of a bro dude, a college dude, and I guess that's maybe what you're referring that, that, to there. But it that's works, kind of it. Like he's, it works to the He series. sort of seems like a frat, yeah. like he feels a bit like a frat guy. Yeah. Yeah, like a reasonably likable frat guy, but like he just sort of seems like that without being like an over-the-top sort of jockey guy. Yeah. Yeah, but he certainly feels like he's come from privilege. And yeah, he just carries that into every role. Significant other, other or others, who knows, is on- uh, other, other, singular. Nice. Is on um, Paramount Plus as we speak. I was fortunate enough to go along to the movies. That's not quite true. I watched it on a link, but it's a New Zealand film called Muru. Now, this is um, very much a film that speaks to the Maori culture and in particular the um, uh, impact that white police have had on Maori culture life. It's inspired by actual events but not um, uh, taken right from actual events. It's the story of a small town uh, police officer played by Cliff Curtis who finds himself caught between his community and the larger white paramilitary police force who have come to this small town to arrest a man who has made fleeting but I guess adjutant type remarks about beheading the Prime Minister of New Zealand. It was all spoken in anger and of course he doesn't mean it but that gave the opportunity for the white police force to um, focus on him as a domestic terrorist and cause untold amount of disruption to this small, very small Maori community. Um, Cliff Curtis is always an asset to any production. Um, member, many will remember him from so many Hollywood films post Once Were Warriors, but still probably Once Were Warriors for his uh, terrifying role as Uncle. Um, and this film is based on no one particular event, but uh, a series of events that have unfolded in New Zealand history that have seen uh, the police force attack. First, Stephen Wallace in 2000, uh, the Ruatoki riots in 2007, um, going all the way back to the Mungupuhatu uh, riots, police raids in 1916 and Parahaka in 1881. There's a real sort of underground 
sort of a, a movement of, of anger and resentment amongst the Maori community for the way they've been treated by the um, by the largely white police force in New Zealand. And this film speaks to that. It opens with a title card said this is not that says this is not a recreation. This is a response, um, meaning it it's a, speaks from a very certain particular voice, and that voice is all Maori throughout the film. So apart from the Pakiha actors in the in the role in their casting roles, uh, like the police commissioner and and the minister, they all speak in in the Maori tongue. So uh, powerful film, a uh, little bit disjointed in parts. I wasn't quite sure what parts of the country we were in when when they were cutting back and forth between characters, but the actual scenes of conflict. Um, are, are really tremendously powerful and, and show just how important this film is to um, the people of New Zealand, but in also in telling the story around the world. It's called Muru, and it is in uh, limited release as we speak. Simon, let's dive into the world of uh, regional firefighting with a new series called Fire Country. Now, in the last couple of weeks, Simon, I've been going through some of the new... Fr- super fresh uh, free-to-wear dramas that have been coming from the United States. Mm-hmm. We've got the new TV season that's kicked off. And one of the more successful shows was this thing called Fire Country. Uh, successful in that people watch it, not necessarily creatively successful, okay. just to give a bit of a um, clarity there. So this is... And look, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say straight out, I didn't hate this. Good. Okay. It's not particularly great television, but it's very watchable television. Right. Which is sometimes all you really need from a US broadcast show. So the premise of this one is that you've got a, uh, it's a, uh, gosh, uh, back in the day, like prisoners would be released from prison to go and work in like the chain gang and so they'd clean up like local sort of roads and streets and do farming and that kind of work. Uh, There are programs in the US where convicts are released from prison as parts of modern day chain gangs to do firefighting and firefighting related work. So lots of like you think about firefighting, you think about people out there who are like hosing down fires and all that sort of business. But you think about what a lot of work actually is, which is constant work throughout the year where they're going into regional areas and taking care of um, shrubs and like shrubbery rather than shrubs. So a lot of the uh, material on the ground, well, mundane stuff, but a lot of material on the ground, which, you know, if not necessarily cared for, can create sort of large scale fires in a way that you want. So you want these create like fire breaks. You need to do all sorts of things to maintain um, you know, the local residences around. Sure. So anyway, you've got a bunch of prisoners in this TV show that have been sent as a chain gang to do some of this fire work. And in exchange for doing the work, you know, they get their sentences reduced somewhat and etc. Mm. So this series focuses around this young convict. He is part of one of these uh, gangs being sent out to do some of this firefighting work. Anyway, what the people uh, responsible for the program don't know, and as you discover halfway through this episode, the area that he's been sent to do this work in is, in fact, his the place he grew up. This is where all his family and friends oh. are and whatnot. But the thing is, he's got a history, and the people that he left were very happy to see the back end of him. Mm. So now he's suddenly found himself back in, not necessarily part of the community, but the work of the chain gang crossover with the actual local firefighters to a point where a very large scale fire is broken out and so they're all dealing with the you know ramifications of that so they're all doing a lot of firefighting and i've got to say on a tv budget it looks pretty good okay 
like I think that sort of stuff can look really cheap if done poorly. This is a show where I actually think the production quality of it is really quite good. It doesn't do the annoying American thing these days of being super fast paced either. Mm -hmm. They keep it at a really measured pace throughout so you can actually connect with it. Unfortunately, that exposes the problems with the dialogue, hey. which is very hacky, mm. um, which is a bit of a shame because the performances are actually quite good as well. So if you get rid of the dialogue aspects of it, you've kind of got yourself a good little TV show here. Just uh, as the as the characters start intermingling, suddenly, because it's bad dialogue, you suddenly find out every sort of aspect of how they all relate to each other because, boy, do they just tell you straight <laughs> off. And that becomes a real chore to get through but it's got a really good cast on it. Uh, the main guy in it is this guy, um, Max Theriot. Theriot. Um, I don't know him, but apparently he was in SEAL Team for a few seasons. Um, some other sort of quasi-familiar faces. But the two mature faces to sort of take note of in this one, the name actors, I guess. Uh, there's this guy named Billy Burke, mm. who's one of these actors where you've suddenly seen stuff with Billy Burke over the years. He was uh, the Twilight. The Twilight movie. The Twilight films. Yeah, he was Kirsten yeah. Stewart's dad in the Twilight films. Yeah, but like he's been part of the cast of pretty much every Everything, US yeah. broadcast thing for, you know, the last 20 years. He's one of those actors that never really quite cut through, but yeah, I think he's generally pretty good. He's just a bit handsome. Yeah, he's got that leading man look with a character yeah. actor resume sort of thing. Yeah, but in this one, he looks a lot more draggled. Like he's Billy Burke, I'm guessing, is in his like early to mid 50s at this point, would be my assumption. Very few of um, us can keep it together at that age, Dan. I mean,. You're very lucky to be looking at someone like me who's 55 and is still as handsome as I am. So, <laughs> Billy Burke. I mean, the thing is, uh, he, he still kind of holds it together, but like they're letting him sort of look his age a bit more. And he's partnered up with Diane Farr as his uh, long-term love interest. And Diane Farr, people would know from the Dennis Leary shows Rescue Me mm -hmm. and uh, that cop series that they were in together before Rescue Me. That's exactly like Rescue Me, but it's not. Uh, the Job, that's the name of oh, that yeah, one. okay. Anyway, Diane Farr, I think, is genuinely very funny and charming. Not so much in this. She's just kind of there. But anyway, like, she's a perfectly genial presence on screen. Those two are there. The young cast are all fairly compelling. Everyone tells each other too much about how they're feeling at any given moment, which is a huge suck on the series. But beyond that, if you want something a little bit mindless, like, I think you're going to do much worse than Fire Country, which is streaming here in Australia on Paramount+. Plus. Looks and feels very much like a rural set. I haven't seen it. I'm only going off what I'm looking at here on the um, database of movies on the internet. Looks and feels yep. very much like Chicago Fire, sort of the ensemble fireman piece, but in a rural setting. Look, I mean, probably a fair comparison. So the writing team on it are people that came from the Grey's Anatomy and um, I think it was called Doubt, which is the um, related show with what's her name in it. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, the, the one who was in Knocked Up. Oh, Catherine Heigl. Catherine Heigl. Yep. Yeah. So they had a little spin-off series for her. I don't think it's actually in the universe of the show, but, no. you know, she went off and did that, and these okay. Grey's Anatomy writers wrote that for her. So it feels very Grey's Anatomy-ish in regards to a lot of the characters and yeah. the interplay, but by and large, if you're willing to sort of overlook that, and it is just a US broadcast procedural, so keep in mind what it is, but, you know, you can do far worse than this one. Fire Country is on... What's it on here in Australia? Paramount Plus. So, Paramount Plus. So that's kind of the interesting thing in that... A lot of these US broadcast shows, anything that's on CBS is just making its way into Paramount Plus mm. in Australia. 
So this is absolutely the sort of thing where back in the day, you'd find it on a Thursday night on Channel 10 that'd give it a go for about seven or eight weeks and either it takes off or, you know, they just burn it off somewhere else in a schedule. Sure. Um, those sorts of things aren't happening anymore. They're just finding their way onto Paramount Plus, mm. which is a bit weird because I've got all these shows that are there, but they're not displaying any of them on the homepage. So you actually have to actively know that they're there to go looking for them. That is a bit odd. Yeah. Not and like, this is not the sort of show anyone should actively be hunting down. All right. Okay. So, Fire Country, good-looking show, good-looking trailer. Um, that is on yeah, Paramount look, Simon, Plus. I'd be, I'd be interested if you watched it and let me know what you think. Okay. Like, I think your thoughts would be very similar to mine in that there's not really a lot there in terms of uh, substance, but it's still kind of a fun watch. I in love a, a good fireman story. I love a good fireman story. Um, I love a bad fireman story too. That the uh, also in cinemas this week is a French film, The Twelfth of Night, from director Dominique Moll. Now I am very uh, eager to see this one. The reviews on this one um, are crash hot. It's a serial killer murder mystery procedural type French movie, um, which they do very well given the opportunity. And Dominique Moll is a fine director. He's done some good work in the past. So that is in cinemas as we speak. It's called The Twelfth of Night. Do check it out if you like good smart international cinema we're going to do the middle bit it's a bit of a seat of the pants kind of middle bit we haven't really <laughs> given it too much thought um it was oh, all inspired <laughs> i've given it a lot of thought i know you've given a lot of thought it, it was sort of in, it was inspired by uh dan's newsletter which went out on always be watching the week's news uh from all the world of entertainment on uh do subscribe over at alwaysbewatching.com and uh this morning he ragged on the hardy boys which i took offense to and it's inspired this middle bit so to wit so quite literally as i said at the beginning of the podcast like we started recording this like you know about 10 past eight in the morning my time i literally sent out my newsletter about three minutes before then and i'd come up with this hardy boy story maybe about like six minutes before then yeah so it's it's all very fresh in mind but myself and simon started talking about it and i got a bit passionate yes you did so look here's here's the situation there's for the last couple of years there's been a show produced for hulu in the us called the hardy boys news to get it here in australia okay yeah so it's, it's a kid show like there's no reason you should watch it if you are watching it that's a bit creepy <laughs> like really it should grow up like, it's not I? it's not for you like it's it's for kids okay. it's for the teenage boys of the world okay. and teenage girls and however other people i remember you said that when i get to my point making about the uh the hardy boys you've talked yourself into a corner there already my friend but do go on no, I haven't, but I'll explain why you're wrong in misconstruing what I was talking about earlier. So, the Hardy Boys, they've cancelled the show after... Th- Sorry, I should say in Australia we get it on Disney+, Plus, right. I believe. Yeah. So, they've cancelled the show after three seasons. They had a 13-episode season, a 10-episode season, and they're finishing it off with an 8-episode season. Yeah, that's not good. Anyway, I was looking at that and it just sort of dawned on me. I thought, well, I know there's been some other Hardy Boys shows. Oh, yeah. So, like... How many episodes do these really run? And I knew there was that one in the late 70s because my mum bangs on about it all the time mm-hmm. and it was the Hardy Boys Nancy Drew Mysteries. And I thought, well, how many episodes did that really run for? And that was a series that ran for 46 episodes Good across um, three seasons. Okay, and I thought, well, that's not really a lot of episodes. And also I was reading up about the show because I haven't actually seen it. And they just mentioned that the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries, uh, they used to alternate like one week it'd be Nancy Drew, the other week it'd be the Hardy Boys. And so for the first season, like each of them get like, you know, about six episodes in that 12, 13 episode first Plenty season. Plenty of crossover though. Yeah. Nancy and the Hardy. Not in that first season. Mm. In that first season, there's just alternating episodes. 
In the second season, because they realised the Nancy Drew part of it wasn't really sort of sparking with audiences, it became a lot more Hardy Boys focused, mm. and they brought the Nancy Drew characters in to team up with them regularly throughout the run. Yeah, They still did a bit of alternating, but it was more Hardy Boys than not. And then the third season, they just canned Nancy Drew entirely, and it was just the Hardy Boys, that final uh, run of episodes. So all up, there were only about 32 episodes of that with uh, Hardy Boys featured in the show. Uh, there's 31 episodes of the current season. So in terms of Hardy Boys total viewing, that 1970s version, the more successful um, of the lot, like that is definitely the uh, most successful the Hardy Boys have ever been on screen. 32 episodes. Mm. There's also a 1995 show, which I was actually very fond of when I saw it back in 95, 96. And they had two new, there was a new Hardy Boys series. There was a new Nancy Drew series. Yep. Uh, the Nancy Drew, uh, she was a bit of a fox. I was a bit of a fan of that one. Uh, <laughs> but that creepy. show wasn't particularly that good. Well, I was a 15-year-old boy at the time, Simon. Yeah. It was perfectly pleasant. And also, I believe she was in her early 20s when she produced it. So it still holds perfectly fine for me to say she was a fox. But there was a Nancy Drew show, which wasn't particularly great. But I remember quite liking the Hardy Boys um, series. And I think they may have crossed over maybe in like the like in the middle of the season, they did a bit of brief crossover with both. But the Hardy Boys show got canned after just 13 episodes. And I don't think that Nancy Drew series did much like further chop than that either. Okay. There was also a 1969 animated show about the Hardy Boys, yes, which lasted all of 17 episodes. Mm -hmm. So ultimately what we're looking at is the first one being an animated show, chopped after 17 episodes. The 70s version, the most successful of them, just 32 episodes have the Hardy Boys. The 95 series, 13 episodes, and now we're seeing the current one cancelled after 31 episodes. So my contention is, audiences don't actually care about the Hardy Boys, and maybe we just need to give it a rest. To which I would offer a counterpoint, and bear with me on this mm. one. The Hardy Boys, for... Uh, me was my Harry Potter back in the day. I had every single Hardy Boys book um, uh, in both hardcover uh, for the bulk of the the books releases, and then the smaller paperback version. So I was well into the Hardy Boys, uh, and the TV series was a pivotal moment when uh, Sean Cassidy and Parker Stevenson got up there as the Hardy Boys. It was must-watch TV, and the rest of the family knew not to get in the way of Simon leading up to, during, and in the minutes just after a Hardy Boys episode was on. So, um, I... So can, can, I ask a can I ask a question? <laughs> so, your love for the Hardy Boys long. books... Yeah, go on. Now, your love for the Hardy Boys books, were they the original versions of them or the, the ones that were edited later to remove all the racial stereotypes from them? Oh, no, they were dark and nasty all the way through. Well, that's probably a bad analogy. But, yes, no, you're right. They were... Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not the phrasing you want. That's not the phrase at all. Uh, no, they were the original uncut versions of the, the Hardy Boys books with... You know, with all the racism intact. With all the racism intact, yes. Yes, I, I understand now why they were so beloved. Mm. Go on. Oh, yeah. Big deal for me and yeah. the family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the family. The, yeah. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so, the show itself, at the time, even though it ran for... And, and you say that a three-year, three-season run is fairly negligible in terms of television. That was a big deal back in broadcast TV so, days of the sorry. 70s, 80s. Well, well, no. I mean, three seasons was a short-lived series, it, ultimately. It's, but it's also a series that got retooled two times throughout its run because it wasn't sparking with audiences. It was absolutely sparking with a certain demographic of the audience. These people were front and centre of newsstands 
back in the days when news agents sold magazines, they were everywhere on this. So they came out of the gate very high. <laughs> you can't discount Sean Cassidy's popularity with a certain demographic. I'm I'm not discounting that at all, Simon. I'm just suggesting that maybe audiences aren't actually that excited by the Hardy Boys, as evidenced by the fact that the show got cancelled pretty quickly. And clearly, in the late 70s, people cared more about the Hardy Boys than Nancy Drew, who didn't even make her way into that third season. All, okay. all true. All true in hindsight. But when you're in the moment and enjoying it in the moment and you're of a certain age group, this was the big television. You've got to remember, this was a television uh, ruled by uh, old men in cop shows and... Um, and Charlie's Angels. Charlie's Angels and, and those sure. sort of things, yeah. So um, for boys of a certain age and teenagers, the Hardy Boys were a really big deal. So, yes, was it ever as popular as the publishing phenomenon that was the Hardy Boys books? No. Has it ever well, I mean, been my, since? No. My also thing would be that the Hardy Boys as a publishing phenomenon has certainly seen its time. Yes. I would. Well, I guess so. I don't know what. I don't, I don't know the figures on how many books they sell. Oh, look, I, I think the fact that you came out saying that this is the, uh, the Harry Potter of its time, like <laughs> publishing's moved on broadly. Sure. Okay. So yeah. the upside being, yes, has the television industry and their creatives captured the magic? that is the Hardy Boys, uh, that was the Hardy Boys books? Maybe not. Was the original series kind of a big deal? Yes, it was Sorry, for a while. Is, is that magic for rampant racism? <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Oh, I, how I long for those days. Um, but, okay, let's say that as a broadcast property, it's maybe not the, uh, the be-all and end-all of what the streaming sector is looking for right now. So ultimately, you've come around to exactly what I'm saying, which is that people don't care for the Hardy Boys. Let's give it a rest. Uh, people don't care for the current incarnation of the Hardy Boys. But they haven't, like, it hasn't sparked previously. Like, I know that you've got these rose-coloured house salons homes, but, like, you look back and say, if the show was such a success, like, why were there so few, sh like, why were each of the seasons so short? There's a lot of factors at play in the world of 70s broadcast television. If so Simon, if something's a success, they milk as much of it as possible. <laughs> That's how TV works. Uh, it's how it's always worked. It's how it'll continue to work. I if something's successful and you can milk it, you milk it. They need to bring Sean Cassidy and Parker Stevenson back as the Hardy Gramps. Or the... <laughs> uh, and have them... They could be the new Jessica Fletchers of television, the Hardy boys uh, in their senior years. So just an idea. So I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not sure that neither... I mean, Sean Cassidy's found success later in life, not so much in front of the camera as much as behind the camera. So yep. he's had a few series. None of the massive successes, but, you know, he keeps on plugging away and he's doing just fine. I think he's, he's got um, a um, Las Vegas gig at the moment, doesn't he? Isn't he still doing his singing? Uh, is he? Yeah, absolutely he is. And Parker Stevens is Sorry, a working I'm, actor. He's I, still around. I, I'm not getting my Sean Cassidy Google alerts anymore for some reason. I've got to go and check my settings. <laughs> All right, I think we've exhausted that middle bit, and I'm proven right once The last again. time I remember seeing Parker Stevenson in something was in a arc he had on TV's Melrose Place in the mid-90s. No way. Parker Stevenson's been popular for years. I'm good. That's uh, popular's, popular's maybe not necessarily the word. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm a Hardy's boy fan. Except know, he may be a I'm a Hardy's boy fan. I know popular. See, he's got a 20... He was in Greenhouse Academy. Sorry, what? A lot of Christmas movies for the Hallmark Channel. Sorry, what? Yeah, I know. Okay. He was in Terror Peak, a 2003 TV movie. 
He did the voice of Paxton Powers in Batman Beyond. There you go. You're going to come around to your way of thinking now. <laughs> sure. He's done shit since Melrose Place, I must admit. Uh, I mean, he's been on Baywatch, I guess, in 28 episodes. Yeah. I feel that was that first season of the show, mostly. Jeez. When it was like really about the serious sort of lifeguard activity before it became all about the um, other extracurricular activities. Yeah. Yeah, might have been. Look at these great uh. titles in the Hardy Boys. Mystery of the Flying Courier. The Flickering Torch Mystery. The Secret. Okay, I've had enough. Simon, we're moving on. <laughs> okay, Simon, what else have you been watching? Um, well, I've finally come around to watch the UK version of Ghosts. Now... Question, sorry. Did you just watch that? Is that your first ghost or have you seen the American ghosts first? No, I haven't seen the American ghosts. Okay. Um, come straight to everyone telling me how wonderfully funny and how popular the American version is. And it apparently had, what was the statistics during the week that it had the biggest broadcast return season debut in, I don't know, 300 years or something. But yeah, it's done very Possibly. well. It does very well for CBS. I don't think it's very good. Okay. But I quite like the UK one. The UK one I found very funny. First of all, I was struck by exactly how many of my favourite Taskmaster people are in there. Charlotte Ritchie, of course, is Alison in the Lille and, and Lolly at a Fopay and Katie Winks are all in there doing good work. Katie Wicks, I should say. Um, but the series itself, that first episode is very, very funny where you get to meet all the different ghosts and that moment right at the end of the episode where she um, uh, has had her fall out of the window and uh, realises she can see the ghost for the first time, uh, especially the headless one, is very, very funny. Uh, I'm about six episodes in and each get funnier and funnier and play on the character traits um, uh, particularly well. And all the uh, gooey zombies that live in the downstairs basement that only she can see is are also very funny as well. So if you haven't seen Ghosts UK or if you're only watching the US version, go back to the British version and see some very funny sort of ensemble comedy and beautifully cut and edited show as well it's got a real comic timing to it that's very very funny i am madly in love with charlotte Ritchie. yeah me too and not just because yeah not just because you know she's a lovely looking lady who's got some great sort of comedic chops but i just think that consistently like over the last 10 years or so she just keeps on doing interesting projects so i know her best from fresh meat right. which is the follow-up series from the guys that did peep show pre-succession uh, but then also there was like this really sort of um, fairly funny short-lived series called Siblings that she was in. Okay. And then she'd just been like a jobbing actor, just going from show to show. Apparently she did 30 episodes of Call the Midwife, but I was never a viewer of that show, so I never quite saw it. Her- but you'll see her pop up in things like, you know, Death in Paradise or Doctor Who yep. and Stathlet's Flats, all those sorts of UK staples. Her- uh, she did a McDonald and Dodds, as I remember. Her... Um, ep- her episodes, her series of, of Taskmaster in which she was on there with Johnny Vegas and uh, Catherine Parkinson, um, she was so adorable and so funny and so committed to the tasks, yet clearly not very um, creative or athletic in any of them. She was, It was very, very funny and I became a huge fan of her then and she's very lovely and, and very sweet in, in this as well, as is the rest of the cast, the... Um, uh, who's I've got uh, Jim Howick who plays the Scoutmaster is very very funny. Uh, um, yeah, he's pretty incredible. Yeah, he's great. So all good things to say about um, the the UK version of Ghost. And you say I shouldn't bother with the US version or uh, look I another mean another one of these popular the comedies talk- that nobody should be watching according to Dan Barrett. Well, people in the US talk about how funny it is, but then it kind of feels to me very similar to the experience I had with. 
Oh, gosh. Um, oh, why can't I think of the name? Uh, well, the Australian Runs Review with Miles Barlow. Uh, review with um, Tucker... I don't know if that's... Oh, what was the series called? Don't know. Okay, so in Australia, they had the show called Review with Miles Barlow. Yep. It was a very cheap series that was produced for ABC2 back in the day. Mm-hmm. And it was about a guy who just goes and reviews everyday things. Okay. They never give an explanation as to why he's reviewing these things. It's just, that's the premise of the program. And so he goes off and does that. Uh, But then they did this American remake of it, which is Review with Forrest McNeil. Oh, okay. No, don't know that. And it's got Andy Daly in it. And like, there's moments of it which should be very funny, but in typical American fashion, it's just a little bit overwritten and it's just a bit too slickly produced. And it kind of just removes something about the charm of it all. And I found the same thing with the American Ghosts. Like, I quite like the cast on it, but it just kind of feels just so cloyingly American in a way that, uh, like, I, I don't want to come across like one of these people who are like, oh, American stuff. Oh, let me hold my nose as high as possible around it. Um, like, I don't believe that at all. Like, I watch a lot of American stuff, but every so often there's something that just kind of feels too overly American. And Ghosts absolutely falls into that category for me. Okay. All right. Well, as long as the UK is one there to fall back on, I'll be happy. Uh, it is. Yeah. Where did I see it? I think I saw it on Stan or maybe on my HBO Max thing. I think I watched it. On- Look, I, it is on both of those. Like I can. It's one of those shows that I think the rights to it are just available all over the place. So. All around the place. Cool. What have yeah. you been watching, Dan? So look, I've been watching a bunch of things lately. So I finally got around to watching Quiz, which was the uh, quiz show. Uh, it, it was like it's a real life story about what happened oh, when the there's a yeah well yeah so there's a uh, couple who end up trying to rig who wants to be a millionaire so I've watched the first of the three parts and I found it very compelling yeah. you know it, it's a good watch McFadgen, uh, I also that watched was, that was McFadgen and Michael Sheen were the two big stars in that McFadgen yeah Matthew McFadgen and also that lady who's in that submarine drama Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I know her. She's good. Um, yeah. yeah no, uh, also, I've been, watching, I've been watching Karen Peary, which is a new show that's debuted on BritBox. Yeah. Uh, this, like, literally, it's debuted about an hour ago. Uh, it's about a young police detective. Her name's Karen Peary. Uh, she's, it's like Scottish police. Okay. Anyway, basically, she, she's, you know, in her late 20s. She doesn't really have a huge amount of experience. She's very much new on the force. But she ends up becoming the person who's led, uh, like, tasked to lead this task force, which is investigating a long dormant cold case. So it's a case that happened in 1995 or 96, and it's about this barmaid that was killed under mysterious circumstances. Mystery was never solved. But the reason why people are wanting to investigate it now in 2022 is a podcast has come along uh. and they're investigating the death of this girl and going through it all. And so because there's a tension now around this um, long dormant case, suddenly they've decided to you know try to solve it before the podcaster becomes too much of an issue for them all. Uh, but they've hired this, well, they've chosen like this young woman because much like the host of the podcast, who's another young woman, she kind of feels that, you know, maybe she's the right person to be leading this and also understands what a podcast is, which is pretty important. Yeah, well, that uh, would play into your wheelhouse. I can imagine you'd be, that'd be like when I watch uh, scuba diving because I've got my scuba diving license. So when I watch people go underwater, I pick out all the things that the production hasn't thought of before filming this and you'd be the same with podcasting like a doctor oh, would look. be the same with er or a fireman with that thing you just talked about yeah like taking care of the scrub i got, did get excited when i looked at this and i saw karen perry my first thought yep. that this is actually the story of karen penny buck to sale of the century hostess for many many years ago um 
very attractive yes. woman who's kind of disappeared off the public radar in recent years. Um, but it's somehow not. her story still isn't being told. I don't know. Karen Penny, Google it at home. Not yeah, at work. I probably won't do that. No. But, um, Karen Perry, if you like um, fairly sort of traditional British drama, it's a pretty good watch. Uh, it's not doing anything particularly sort of wild or outrageous, but these are, it's based on a Val McDermott series of books. Uh, the first season covers just that one murder mystery and uh, three episodes that are like 90 to two hours most. Interesting stuff. Now, usually here, I drop in a save the date thing, but I just realized I've forgotten to do that. I will point out that November 4th, November 4th on Apple TV, uh, Me and My Mind, the Selena Gomez documentary from uh, Alec Kasheshian, the director of Madonna Truth or Dare Drops. I do remember that from during the week as being something of note. I'm looking forward to watching that. Big Selena fan and um, her struggles with mental health uh, uh, will be interesting to see how it's documented. Yeah. Simon, are we moving on? Let's move on. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. Okay, Simon, where are we at? Are we at the end of the podcast? We're nearly there. We're getting very close to it. Yeah, we've sort of wrapped it up pretty quickly. Oh, no, we haven't. No, it's well past what we should be talking about. October 15, 1959, in This Week in History, TV series The Untouchables, a movie that we share, uh, its source material, the TV series starring Robert Stack, premiered in the US, 1959. Now, I'm going to put this one to you. October 16, 2009, so three years ago, Netflix reveals... 2009 or 2019? 2019, if we have to be specific, reveals its most watched content for the year. Now, the the most watched original movie on Netflix in 2019 was what? And the TV series was what? Okay, so this feels like it's a year too early for Bird Box. Ooh, I wouldn't say that if I was you. Okay, well then let's say Bird Box. Okay. <laughs> uh, what would the TV series be then? 2019. Uh, TV series... 2019. Gosh, I mean... My immediate instinct is to think that it's still probably like a house of cards because that would have been growing an audience still, but I'm not sure that's necessarily true. Maybe that, like, I'm trying to think when the whole Spacey stuff started going down. So that was actually probably pre-2019, so that doesn't really fit. Uh, Gosh, 2019 Netflix series. I mean, if it was a just and pure world, it'd be Mindhunter, but we don't live in that world, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure, Simon, what the series have been. The answer is, of course, Stranger Things was the most watched TV series of 2019 on Netflix. Good guess with Bird Box, though. Yeah. That was excellent. Was the first season of Stranger Things 2019? I don't know if it was. No, the that f- can't be right. That'd be second season, sure. Yeah, I don't know if it was the first season, but yeah, it would have been one of the seasons of Stranger Things. So there you It'd go. It'd be season two. Yeah, I remember going to the big uh, launch for it they held at the Opera House, which would have been about 2019. October 17, 1957, which Elvis Presley classic premiered in Memphis, Tennessee? <laughs> I don't really know my Elvis films like well enough to be able to... In fact, I've never really watched one through proper. <laughs> I'll answer. They, they are pretty unwatchable. Yeah, they're pretty bad films. It was Jailhouse Rock, which is one of his good ones, but um, that premiered October 17, 1957. And October 19, 1990, the film that would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1991 premiered in Washington, D.C. What was that film? Oh, surely it's The Silence of the Lambs. No, that was the year before. No. This is... Uh, well, no, this is... That was... Uh, yeah. Sorry, Dances with Wolves? Yes, it was Dances with Wolves. Well done. Yeah. Our man Costner. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. The birthdays Simon. are here. Now, you'll see on our running sheet that I've put our visual clue in. Our visual clue goes up each week on the Facebook page around Monday morning. Uh, so I get you to go there and guess what our birthday buddies all have in common. October 16, your man, Michael Conrad, from the bottom of the newsletter. He was born October 17. Sorry, we, sorry to explain who he is. Well, He's Michael, the gentleman from Hill Street Blues yeah. who tells people to be careful out there. That's exactly right. Uh, October 17, the aforementioned Matthew McFadgen, star of Quiz and Succession. Uh, uh, then we go to October 18, Peter Boyle, the wonderful Peter Boyle from Everybody Loves Raymond. He was born. And October 21, Peter Graves, who a lot of you, a lot of listeners would know from the Flying High films, um, but also from other stuff as well. well um, how about Mission Impossible? And Mission Impossible. I know. Don't want to give any clues. So, and how about the how about the series he did in the 1980s called Mission Impossible? Exactly. Fine. So, Mr. Talkie Talkie, what do all these birthday buddies have in common? So, is the common thread for all four of them something related to their birth specifically? No. Well, as in they're all born next week. Yes, but yeah, yeah. But, but but if I was to say something like you know they're all known as being sort of for their American work, but were actually born in the UK, like that wouldn't be accurate. No, no. Well, then that's good that I wasn't going to go with I that. Was then going to say that would have been so wrong. Uh, gosh, I I don't really know. Sorry, really. What's- I mean, oh, wait a second. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I can kind of, I can find links between some of them, but I can't think of something that ties them all together. All right. The answer yeah. is they've all won primetime Emmys. It was that easy. Ah. Okay. Well, I was trying harder. Michael <laughs> Michael Conrad, he won two Emmys for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Hill Street Blues. Matthew McFadgen just won for Supporting Actor for Succession, of course. Now, Peter Boyle, he won his Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series. I can can handle this one. So that was in the 1995 episode of The X-Files called Clyde Brockman's Final Repose. That's right. He did win for that, but he was nominated seven times for Everybody Loves Raymond and never won for that. Now, Peter Graves... He won an Outstanding Informational Series Primetime Emmy for a show called Judy Garland Beyond the Rainbow, which he hosted and co-produced, and not Mission Impossible. He was only nominated once for the Mission Impossible franchise, but he did win um, a 1996 Golden Globe for that role. So um, so I, I presumed, sorry, 1996 Golden Globe for Mission, Mission Impossible. Impossible. That's what it says. That doesn't sound right at all. No, it doesn't sound right at all. That was a straight cut and paste. I should check that. Oh, no. Wait a minute. No. He won the- 1966? Yes. He won the Judy Garland Beyond the Rainbow Award in 1996 and previously 1966 for um, Mission Impossible. That was a yeah. typo. But that's not a, that's a good one. Pete, that was a gettable but, sort of birthday quiz. These birthday so- quizzes- he got an Emmy, uh, sorry, Golden Globe nomination for his work in the original series. Yes. But did he get a nomination for his work in the 1980s Mission Impossible shot here in Brisbane? No, not at all. And on the Gold Coast? No. Very disappointing. It was, it was, um, it was Hardy Boys unpopular. That's how unpopular that series was. Oh man, pretty unpopular. <laughs> okay, Simon, I think it's time to sign off, don't oh, you? We're done. We are so done. 
I'm done than done. Yep. Folks, thank you very much for listening to Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter, which, sorry, is that Elon Musk's Twitter yet? We'll find out. It's at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter, also owned by Elon Musk. Like, people don't know that, but it's one of his major shareholdings, uh, like one of his major holdings. Uh, you can find that one at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, electric cars, streaming, and film. And on Friday, you've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that very week. I put in a bid for Twitter. Didn't come through. Uh, I'm really? on at Simon R. Foster 1. Read my words over at screen-space.net, where I did a fun little story this week about the how um, Plant Kingdom for the Planet of the Apes has started shooting here in Sydney, uh, which is a big production that uh, we managed to nab. Um, go to the Screen Watching Podcast Facebook page and check out our Screen Watching YouTube channel where you'll see my interview interview with Neil LeBoot if I can find it on my computer sometime between now and when the publicist starts chasing me for it. Simon, I'm so excited about this Kingdom of the Plunder of the Apes. Are I you really? well into it. I am very much into this. Okay. I didn't recognise any of the people involved. I didn't, I didn't. But hey, I mean, great that we're getting the production, but we'll see. Did it need a reboot no, this soon after the sort yes. of defining? What is it with you and monkeys? Why is that going? Love on? them. Love them. <laughs> this is going to... For me, this is going to be the avatar of oh, whenever this film comes out. Oh, good Lord. Why are you being sarcastic? I, can, I can't tell anymore. Is it, are you seriously into the monkey movies? Yes. Wow, okay. The Planet of the Apes films were incredible. Wow, incredible is a word that's bandied about a lot nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry that no Hardy Boys. I mean, it's a shame that Parker Stevenson didn't appear in Who any of the Apes Who could be? Movies. Well, first of all, he might be in it. You can't tell under all that makeup. Sean Cassidy uh, could do it. I... I know. He, he is to, not in those movies. Those two, Ta- Cassidy and Parky Stevenson, need to be Tarantino. They need to be brought back in some sort of, you know, big pop culture retro way to make them stars again. <laughs> Can I go now? I've got Hardy Boys to get through. 